Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Where we aired is the government dealt with the Russian meddling as a cyber issue, but... That was only one small piece of this much bigger information war that Russia was waging. I feel like we didn't do enough to explain that piece of the puzzle. We gave people the picture of the the cyber effort, the fact of Russia meddling, but we didn't give a broader picture. I think it's probably fair to say that you believe that President Trump's approach to the world is damaging our national security. That's fair to say. I think he is basically unraveling the U.S. position in the world that has been built up over 70 years before our eyes. Ben Rhodes served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama from 2009 to 2017. He oversaw the administration's national security communications, speech writing, public diplomacy, and global engagement programming. Before joining the Obama administration, Ben was a senior speechwriter and foreign policy advisor to the Obama campaign. Prior to that, he worked for former Congressman Lee Hamilton. Ben is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. I sat down with Ben recently to chat about his book, his time in the White House, and the world we live in today. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from Raytheon our exclusive sponsor. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Ben, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Mike. Because we are... At CBS, I do need to tell our (laughs) listeners that your brother is the president of CBS News. So it's just important I get that out there. I want to say I loved your book, um, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. You won't be surprised that I have a bunch of questions um, as I went through it. Um, And if I could ask them all, we'd literally be here for hours. So I had to be selective. 
But let me do say that I think folks should absolutely read the book. Whether you agree with President Obama's foreign policy or not, it's a great way to understand what the White House was thinking, what you were thinking, what the president was thinking. And I think it, uh, it is going to be an important part of the historical record. So Thanks. people yeah. should actually go out and read it. I want to start in Havana, Cuba, yep. of all places. Did you ever think when you were hired by the Obama campaign that you would be sitting on a dais in Havana as the United <laughs> States' official representative to the funeral of Fidel Castro? I absolutely did not, uh, Mike. I, you know, in, in a weird way, you know, that funeral was December 2016. And in a strange way, I wanted the book to tell the story of what it's like to go from being, you know, 29 when I went to work for Obama to 39, sitting on that dais, a place I never would have thought I'd been after doing all this work on Cuba. What really happened, the reason that happened is that uh, at the beginning of the second term, lots of people were going to have kind of musical chairs and move to different jobs. And President Obama wanted me to stay in the White House. And he said, is there a project that you want to take on, though, that, you know, could give you some more diversity of experience? And I had thought that, you know, sometimes in foreign policy, all you deal with is the inbox. And so I wanted to do something where we could make a, an affirmative difference, where I knew that if, if somebody didn't pick up the ball and try to run on the field with it, it probably wasn't going to get done. And I knew that he wanted to open up relations with Cuba. And, and so I essentially volunteered to do that. And we initiated a secret channel with the Cubans in 2013. And I ended up spending you know, 20 meetings with Alejandro Castro, who's Raul Castro's son, both up to the normalization of relations, that announcement in December of 2014, after that, planning President Obama's trip to Havana. And then after the election, when there was so much uncertainty about where things were going to go, uh, you had Fidel Castro die in that window of time in early December. And I was invited as the only U.S. representative at that funeral. And it was kind of a bizarre scene because you had kind of all of the Latin American and global left represented there, you know, Nicolas Maduro and Danny Ortega. And the only other Americans on, on the dais were... Harry Belafonte and Danny Glover. Mm. So I was a bit out of place there. And as I mentioned in the book, I, I felt out of place there just as I knew I was going to be out of place back in Washington uh, in the Trump years. You know, the, one of the interesting themes, Ben, in your book is that you were you were always in this bit of an identity crisis, right? Yeah. Because because when you when you wrote words that the president was going to say, you wrote them the way he would say them. And yeah. then when you talk to the media, the words you used are the words that he yeah. would be using, right? Yeah. So there's always this identity crisis. So when I was reading about the Cuba stuff, what I felt is that you found your identity there, yes. right? Yeah. And, and that this must have been a particularly satisfying issue for you yeah. in the eight years. That's exactly right. You couldn't have captured it better. You know, it was some, I did, my role generally in the administration was to either speak for him or write for him or even in certain policy debates, kind of articulate what his view was. The Cuba project was something that I had actual kind of policy ownership on in a way that I didn't for anything else. And I got to build these very unique relationships with uh, Alejandro Castro and Raul Castro. I got to work with the Vatican, uh, and I describe, the, actually, you know, the Vatican was as surprised as, as anybody that I was doing this. I remember we went to the Vatican in uh, October of 2014 to finalize the agreements that led to the normalization. And we'd actually already done that, that we'd already negotiated that with the Cubans. And the Vatican was going to be kind of a, a witness or guarantor. And they didn't know why we were there because they don't do any business over email, which in retrospect is kind <laughs> of a wise policy in the 21st century. 
So they thought they were hosting this meeting. And when we got there, they didn't realize that we'd actually completed all the work. And then they had meetings, the, the Secretary of State of the Vatican, a cardinal, uh, had meetings separately with the Cuban delegation and then us. And when I walked in, he said, you know, are you really normalizing relations with Cuba? And I, I said, yes. Uh, and he looked at me and he said, who are you? <laughs> you, know, you know, uh, but it was that sense of like it was improbable. But it was also that was the most satisfying moment for me in government because, again, in a world that just throws a lot of difficult issues and, and often crises at you, to do something that just felt like an affirmative step to try to put something in the past, to try to make progress in Latin America, to try to do something that could be good for the Cuban people. It felt like you know, in a, in, in a sometimes dark world, a, a positive thing to be doing. Yeah, in my 33 years of sitting at CIA, I mean, I actually ran the Latin America office for a while. I always thought that American policy toward Cuba, which is obviously driven by American politics to a large degree, actually sustained the regime, it, right, yeah, rather yeah. than weakened it. It was, it was a, from a national security perspective, the policy made no sense. It, yeah, I mean, it was a kind of policy that you only continue because that's the way you've always done it. You know, it, it took somebody... And President Obama to say, you know what, let's try something different. One very quick anecdote that you'll like, Mike, is early on in the process, the Cubans really didn't trust or like the State Department. And that's one of the reasons why they were talking to the White House directly, because the State Department for years has been the, the kind of visible face of this policy of isolating them. Not necessarily because State Department officials thought that, but that, that's what they were carrying out. And so they always wanted to deal with either the military or the CIA. And I finally said to them, you know, given the history, who would have thought we'd be sitting here in 2013, and the Cubans would be telling us that the CIA is their favorite agency in the U.S. government. How about that? So, Ben, let's let's switch to Russia and its interference in the 2016 election. So, obviously, I'm jumping around here. But four questions for you on that. First, you write in the book that President Obama didn't subscribe to the view that Putin was this tough guy. In fact, you tell the story of the president saying, look, if he was so tough, he wouldn't wouldn't feel he has to take his shirt off and show the world, right? But let me flip the issue on its head. What do you think Putin's view of President Obama was? You know, do you think Putin saw him as weak? And it doesn't mean he was weak, even yeah. if Putin thought that, right? But do you think that's what Putin thought? There was actually one really fascinating exchange that I do relay, which is what I think is Putin, he came back into office without, you know, oil revenues, feeling like the United States had pushed too far in Iraq and Libya, and he was already kind of prepared to come back in a much more confrontational posture than Medvedev had been. And then Ukraine happens. Yanukovych is overthrown by the protests. And Putin clearly believed, and you don't have to think he's right, but I, I think he clearly believed that we were to some extent responsible for that because you know, we provided democracy funding to some people who were in those protests. Right. Um, and every phone call they had, he would say, you know, you overthrew this government and he saw Ukraine as essentially part of Russia. And so he saw that as us coming to Russia. And I remember Obama saying, look, I just, you know, they have these long fights and Obama was trying to find an endpoint to the crisis and was saying, I'm not trying to, you know, encroach upon your space. We don't have some master plan for Ukraine. And what Putin said is, even if you don't, your government does. That, that people in Congress do... The deep state. The, yes. No, really. The, the, the Congress and the, the, the military and intelligence community. And, and so, in some respects, his views of President Obama were almost immaterial. It was his view of America built up over decades. He believed, and again, I don't necessarily think he's right, but that through NATO enlargement and through democracy funding and regime change wars in the Middle East, that the U.S. government 
was had pushed way too far and he was going to push back. And I think it almost didn't matter who was president or what he thought of President Obama. Um, and that's what drove him. That's what drove him. And more than a personalized view of Obama, it was, I'm going to draw a line here and start pushing back. Second question is on the issue of whether or not the president uh, should or should not have said something about Russian interference prior to the election. Mm-hmm. We now know that there is a debate about yeah. that inside the administration. What was your personal view on that issue? So, what, what was your thinking? So my personal view was that the, we, where we erred is the government dealt with the Russian meddling as a cyber issue. So in other words, you had the hack of the DNC and the hack of various other emails and institutions, the release of these emails, and the process that was set up, and even the statement that was issued by the intelligence community and also echoed by President Obama, dealt with hacking and releasing of emails and the security of the election infrastructure. But that was only one small piece of this much bigger information war that Russia was waging, the creation and dissemination of fake news, use of social media bots, the manipulation of people's uh, Facebook feeds and other social media feeds. And I feel like we didn't do enough to explain that piece of the puzzle. You know, we kind of, we gave people the picture of the, the cyber effort, the fact of Russia meddling, but, you know, we didn't give a broader picture. And I, you know, I think, and I raised this internally and kind of the answer was, which I understand is that we're not equipped to do that. We, in other words, we can't start adjudicating what is fake news and what's not. We don't have tools to do that. And if we just start saying, well, some of the news you're reading is fake, Trump will say this is rigged and it's just going to be he said, she said thing. But in retrospect, you know, we saw the Russians develop this information capability in Ukraine and they were using it in Ukraine and in Europe for years before they came to our election. I, I wish that we had drawn from that experience and laid that picture out might not have made any difference, but that's that's where I think we could have yeah. potentially f- done more. The French clearly learned from our experience, yes. right, and yes. did, did that very effectively. They did. Uh, and, and when people ask me, well, what could you do? I, the French and the Germans have been very aggressive in conditioning their public that this is going to happen, uh, having a dialogue with their media companies about it. Their media companies, frankly, have also cooperated in not reporting some material that is hacked. And, and so uh, there is a template of what the Europeans have done that I wish that we were doing because the Russians are obviously going to come back. The third question I have is related to that. And um, something jumped out at me that maybe from your book that maybe didn't jump out at a lot of people. And it's it's my training as an intelligence officer, I think. When the president pulled together his national security team after the election to ask them to put together this intelligence assessment of exactly what the Russians did and discussion ensued about what the Russians did. You wrote that you and the president were surprised at the depth and breadth of everything they did. And then you wrote a few pages later that you were surprised again and the president was surprised again when they actually handed him the paper. Yeah. Right. And that surprised me. Yeah. Right. Surprised me that the president was surprised. Yeah. And I said to myself, gosh, this can be only one of two things, right? Either the intelligence community came to a full understanding of everything the Russians did late, or they had an understanding that they didn't communicate as fully as they should have to the president before the election. Can you react to what I just said? Yes, it's a really good question. And let me react kind of mindful of... Uh, uh, intelligence equities. Intelligence equities. Um, you know, as you know, 
there is an enormous volume of information in the government that we collect. And often what makes its way up the pipeline is stuff that is has a certain degree of certainty and, and it's kind of finished analysis. When you order a review like that, you know, what you do is you, it's like, you know this better than me, but it's almost like fishing with a net. You, you pick everything up, uh, including stuff that might've been more raw, you know, less corroborated. And as that process went, my sense, right. Uh, Cause I wasn't in the middle of that review, but my sense was all of the information that went into that review Suddenly, different things are corroborating each other. The picture is becoming, you know, clearer and more robust. So it's the outline is the same, but there was just a, like the process of that review. Everything was corroborating a more um, robust effort. That was the first thing. I think the second thing would be there was also intelligence. You know that we learned more after the election. Um, that also informed that review. And then the third thing was probably, as you know, sometimes the FBI's material is not always put together with the other information in the intelligence community. My sense was when the FBI's material was put together with everything else, once again, it confirmed a more alarmist picture of what had happened. So it's not that the IC didn't have that or miss something before the election. It's just that the process of saying, we're going to go back and look at everything and try to to build out this picture, it led to kind of, you know, if the, if the spectrum was one to 10 with 10 being the most alarming, it, it, it drove the, the needle to 10, yeah, you know. Yeah. Speaking as a former intelligence officer, one of the things that actually surprised me sitting on the outside was that the president, you don't even have to respond to this if you don't want to, that the president had to ask yeah. for the assessment. Yeah, yeah. You know, had, had I been the DNI, yeah. I would have ordered it up prior to the election. Yeah. But... He, yeah, that's a, I mean, I, and again, I think what it speaks to is two things, the, the, the cyber dimension I spoke about. And, you know, the Russians have always been trying to hack us and have, you know, have hacked us. It was this dimension of obviously releasing things. It was different. And but one of the things that got kind of mocked in the public assessment when it came out by some of the skeptics is why do you have this stuff in here about RT? Right. right? right. Which actually completely missed the point right. of something that really got, I think, DNI Clapper's attention, which is whoa, this information campaign was really robust. Not just because it was on RT, but that everything from RT to social media to the hacking and releasing was all of of a strategic direction, right? And so it kind of forced the intelligence community into a different space because the intelligence community hasn't, you know, they steal secrets. Some of this stuff wasn't secret, right? Some of the stuff is what are they doing in the information space? But how does what they're doing in the information space connect to things that we are seeing and the secrets that we're gathering, right? And so, uh, again, I think that review kind of forced a more comprehensive step back and look at what exactly happened here that allowed people to draw some connections that, that probably weren't fully realized before the election. And to be fair to the intelligence community, they don't look right at, yeah. at, at American social media they, exactly. and evaluate it, right? That's exactly right. Nor does the NSC defend against the manipulation of people's faith. I actually, I described the irony in the book. I had actually spent a lot of time from 2014 on combating Russian disinformation in Europe because that was kind of our mandate. And we we didn't have a mandate to suddenly say we're going to be trying to guard against the manipulation of Americans. Fourth question about, about Russia, Ben. In explaining the 
Obama administration's response to Russian meddling in the election. One of your former colleagues, friend of yours, friend of mine, Victoria Newland, former assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs, recently told the Senate intelligence community is what she said exactly. I think it's probably the case that the Russians expected deterrent measures and didn't see them and so felt they could keep pushing. Jim Clapper recently said something very similar on this show. In the actions that we took after the election to push back on Russia, do you think we should have been tougher? What were you guys thinking, right, when you put the sanctions on and took the steps you did? You know, was that in your mind the last action where there's supposed to be more? What was your sense? No, I mean, after the election, the package, I mean, you remember, like me, you had to sit in many (laughs) deputies and principals committee meetings, and you have kind of the three options, and the, the toughest one, toughest package was the one that we did. I actually write in the book about how I actually raised, well, how come Putin's not on here? <laughs> you know, right, um, right. Uh, if we're doing sanctions for people right. responsible. Right. Um, so, I, you know, there, I think we, you know, there were ways in which we could have gone even beyond what we did. But what we did was kind of the throwing the book at the Russians as best we could. And, you know, part of this is we'd already sanctioned them pretty heavily over Crimea and Ukraine. So after the election, I think we did do kind of the maximum, you know, with the potential exception of bringing in Putin or some other senior Russians. I think the question is, would it have mattered to do something before? I actually wasn't really in those discussions, as I described, that it was so compartmented. I, I actually thought we had a beat on a terrorist yeah. world, Michael, because yeah. it reminded yes. me of uh, the bin Laden operation, the situation room meetings without the cameras on. And the, but, you know, I think the judgment was made that warning the Russians about offensive measures would be the, what, you know, the course. And Obama did do that with Putin in September of 2016, and that if we had escalated a cyber conflict with them, it might have led them to uh, actually respond more forcefully in the election itself, uh, the election infrastructure, the voting. That was a judgment that was made. Again, I don't think uh, my I think Putin had decided that he was going to come into the United States. And he, you know, we, in his view, had come into Russia by going to Ukraine. Again, his view, not not mine necessarily. So I don't know that. And know, he blamed Secretary Clinton personally, right, for... Yeah, I think that was a... Yeah, I, I think he lumped her in with kind of that directional antagonism from the U.S. government of criticizing him, of, of, of getting into Russian po- domestic politics, of, of encroaching on Russian, uh, you know, near abroad. And so I think he was going to do it anyway. So I actually don't think, you know, some cyber operation could have deterred what he did. Actually, I do have one more question on Russia now that I think of it. Jim Clapper wrote in his book that he believes, and he made absolutely clear in his book that the IC didn't even look at this question, right? Mm. That he believes that what the Russians did changed the outcome of the election. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, number one, I don't know how people can say that they know it didn't. (laughs) You know, like analytically, that makes no sense to me. I believe that if Russia is mounting a massive information operation that is, you know, reaching American voters in the, the millions or tens of millions, that if you have an election that's basically decided by 100,000 votes in three states, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, it is quite likely that the Russians could have swung the election. I do think it's an unknowable. I, I you know, think of the old, you know, there's known, <laughs> there's known knowns and then there are unknowns. I, I, I think you, because we can't get in the head of everybody who voted, right? But I think we have to recognize that it was an enormous scale what they did what they were doing is pushing themes like Hillary Clinton is corrupt or she's not healthy or that mirrored what Trump was doing. 
So in a way, it was hard to distinguish, you know, did, did someone vote this way because Trump is saying this and, and, it, and some right-wing media is saying it or because they consumed a greater volume of it because of Russians. I don't think you can know that. But I do think that we have to recognize that, you know, it's certainly possible, if not likely, that an effort of that scale could swing a, a significant number of voters, at least in, you know, one or two or three states. Yeah. My own personal view is when you lose by 70 to 80,000 votes in three states, everything, everything matters. matters exactly. Everything matters. So it's, you, you could say Russia, you could say probably four or five other things. Right. Yeah. Right. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Ben Rhodes after a word from our sponsor. In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents, combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat, to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission-critical systems, to deliver trusted, innovative solutions that secure our way of life, and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place. Because when everything is connected, security is everything. Let me throw some other issues out and get your reaction, Ben. First is Syria. There's a theme in the book that throughout the policy debates that you personally thought, or maybe the better way to say it, you felt that we should be doing more. Yeah. In fact, you say in the book that you'll be thinking about the decision-making in Syria for the rest of your life. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, what did you have specifics in mind of what more you thought we should be doing in retrospect? You know, do you think it would have made any difference to how Syria turned out? How do you unpack all of that? Yeah, and the way I unpack that, and I wanted to kind of take people into kind of my personal transformation on this, is that, you know, early in the Syrian crisis, you know, I had been kind of, an activist on the Arab Spring generally, Egypt, Libya. And I felt we should do more, but analytically, I couldn't really articulate what we should do. You know, I described being in meetings with President Obama in 20, early 2013 and saying, you know, because I had been told this by other activists, you know, well, we could bomb the runways where Assad's planes take off from. And Obama would look at me and say, well, what happens when they rebuild the runways the next day? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I can't answer that question. And nor am I, frankly, qualified to design some military option for Syria. And so I kind of described this process of almost being defeated by the absence of a good argument for what we should be doing and an increasing recognition of the complexity of the war there, uh, that this was not two sides fighting. This was a multifaceted war. You had extremists, different extremist groups involved. You had foreign powers, Russia, Iran, but also some of our friends in the region involved. And you had no international mandate to do something there. You you know, the factors, it wasn't enough to believe that we'd be justified in doing something. Like, you have to know that doing something is going to succeed. So was the difference in your mind between Libya and Syria, the fact in Libya that we could stop a guy from killing his own people? And in Syria, we, at the end of the day, couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I, my, were you in those meetings, Michael, right when President Obama made the decision about Libya? Um, yes, absolutely. So what I remember yep. very starkly is look, having a map presented to me, I think by you, you know, and the map showed Benghazi is a dot on a map, and there are X hundred thousand people live there, and here's Gaddafi's forces, and we can get a UN Security Council resolution, and we do have international support from the Europeans and others, 
And if we act, we will save these people's lives. And if we don't, we won't. And in Syria, uh, and you can still argue about whether that was right, by the way. In Syria, there was never anything that straightforward. I even described another debate, you'll remember, that, that got to the complexity of the matter to me, which is at the same time that the proposal worked its way up to President Obama to provide military support to the opposition, a proposal worked its way up to designate al-Nusra, a chunk of that opposition, as a terrorist organization. And so, it, you know, the, 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 no option was without, you know, dramatic, potentially unintended consequences. I do think the one thing that I, uh, I try to be more forward-leaning in saying, what if we'd done this differently, is at the beginning, did we miss a diplomatic opportunity? Could we have done something to try to forestall the conflict as it was building? And I talk about the decision to call for Assad to go, Obviously, I believe Assad, Syria would be better off without him. But, you know, maybe we analytically just were conditioned these dictators are falling. Assad will inevitably go. It's the correct thing to do morally to say he should go. But maybe by doing that, we might have foreclosed the opportunity to at least pursue some diplomatic effort to try to forestall a civil war. And I remember we, the intelligence community, were saying yeah. it looks like he's going to go. Right? Yeah, there was that one, the high watermark for that was... Remember, there was that assassination attempt in Damascus that uh, really struck at the heart of the regime. Right. You had high-level defectors. Right. It looked the same Fall way. Fall of 2012. Yeah, it yep. looked kind of like what you know, Libya looked like, yeah. and to a lesser, you know, Yemen and Egypt and Tunisia. And uh, I, I think the in- intervention of Russia and Iran was so much more dramatic that you know it, it, that that's ultimately what kind of stemmed the tide for for Assad. So the president the president has said publicly that he regrets Libya and there's sort of a debate out there does that mean he regretted the intervention and the stopping of the killing or that he regretted that we didn't think more about or the Europeans, right? That we we didn't push the Europeans to think more about the aftermath. Yeah. I took that statement to be referring to the aftermath. I think he's probably torn about the decision itself, but I know that he, you know, that we can find fault with the the planning for the aftermath. You know, it was kind of a perfect storm. I I remember the Europeans were going to be more involved. Well, first of all, the Libyans didn't want people there. Uh, So it was hard to get the UN in and, you know, an office opened. They they were very sovereignty conscious. Second, the Libyans were doing some training uh, outside of Libya in places like the U.K., and there were some incidents where I think there was some crimes committed and, and they kind of shut down a training program. And we could never really right. get something right. going. Right. Then, of course, you have the Benghazi attacks, which for all intents and purposes, we can make it very difficult for us to be that president in Libya. And the last thing I remember what we got wrong was the people who were in charge of Libya, the, the TNC, the kind of Transitional National Council, uh, who were all kind of well-spoken people, well-meaning people largely, they they were the political representatives of the Libyans, but they had no connection to the guys with guns on the ground, the right, different militias. That. And yep. so you couldn't pull a lever and make something happen there. And and so we kind of lost uh, control of, of the post-conflict situation over the course of, you know, 12 and 13. And, you know, perhaps we could have, you know, if we'd been more robust at the front end, uh, perhaps uh, we could have done something to forestall that. The challenge, of course, was that Gaddafi had kind of hollowed out the place. So there were no institutions to work with because Gaddafi had prevented those institutions from emerging. Yeah. A quick question about Syria and how it played into the Iran nuclear 
issue. The Obama administration is often publicly accused of not doing more in Syria, right, Um, in order to keep the nuclear negotiations going. Nail in that coffin? Yeah. I mean, look, I I must have sat in thousands of hours of meetings about those two topics, and I never heard them linked. The Syria, and the fact of the matter is some of the most important decision-making about Syria took place in advance of um, right. us being anywhere close to an Iran deal right. in 2011, 12, and 13. Right. Um, the window for the JPOA, the interim agreement with Iran, didn't really open until the summer of uh, 13. But, you know, we never drew that that linkage. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, the nuclear issue in general was kind of walled off even in the Iranian system from what they did in Syria. So uh, they weren't drawing that linkage either. It was a, it was a deal to, to address... People can say you should have addressed other aspects of what Iran was doing, but I don't think it's just I think it's factually not true that we we were linking those and doing less in Syria because of the nuclear negotiations. So you mentioned Benghazi. You know, in our house, we're not allowed to say Benghazi. We say <laughs> Libya's second largest city. Yes. But I want to ask about the partisan nature of foreign policy, which affected both of us with yeah. regard to Benghazi. We were accused of lying about it. You were accused of lying about aspects of the Iran nuclear yeah. deal. Is there a defining moment in your mind when foreign policy became much more partisan or has it evolved over time? Where does it come from? What's your sense? That's a really good. It's an important question because people, I think, don't believe how destructive it is to have, you know, part of the reason why it was so difficult to respond to the Arab Spring is that when you knew that whatever you did, everybody else was going to oppose it on the other side, it did kind of limit your options. So put that aside. For me, you know, this probably evolved over time. After 9-11, the unity, I think Democrats would say the Republicans tried to take advantage of national security politically in the, in the 2002 elections. I think Republicans would say the Democrats tried to take advantage of it and kind of politically opposing the Iraq war. At some point, the post-9-11 unity frayed. For me, though, I'll actually tell you the moment where it really sunk in for me, which was the bin Laden operation. Because I remember that we have this flawless operation go on, which is, you know, all to the credit of the CIA and the special operators. President Obama gets credit for the decision, but the the execution obviously was by, you know, nonpartisan people. And then I remember uh, there was kind of one of these tempests in a teapot after that operation, because our friend and former colleague John Brennan did a press briefing and he, a couple of the details he gave turned out to be inaccurate about the raid, just because like everything else, as we've learned, the first accounts evolve. Yep. And kind of it was two days after the raid and Republicans jumped, jumped on this and said, you know, we were, you know, attacked us for spinning this. And then we had a, and I remember feeling really depressed at like, can't we just feel good about this? Right. <laughs> you know, like, right. um, uh, right. and I even remember like some of the Republican statements about the bin Laden operation congratulated George Bush and didn't name Barack Obama. And I, I just remember thinking like, there's something we've sunk low, we've here. sunk low here. Like yeah. we should all just stop yeah. and feel really good about this together. Yeah. Everybody kind of had a piece of this. And, and for whatever reason, that was the time for me that I realized that nothing, if this couldn't unify us, you know, nothing will. Um, and it, it just got worse and worse over the course of, of our time. One, one specific issue in terms of this partisan nature that I wanted to ask you about is there were folks actually investigating you, yeah. right, to yeah. try to undermine the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. And you've said publicly that you would be very surprised if the 
Black Cube, former Mossad guys that were accused of spying on yeah. you, were not doing it without the knowledge of the Israeli government. Yeah. Did you really mean Netanyahu? Do you think he might have known? I didn't necessarily mean Netanyahu personally. You know, what I meant is Israel's a small country where people know each other and people in the security business know each other. And to me, the idea that you might have a collection of former Mossad agents operating in different countries in Europe, presumably in Israel and the United States to collect information on a very high ranking former uh, official who was probably, let's face it, an Israeli intelligence target at some point for different purposes. Right. The the idea that the Mossad wouldn't at least pick that up and be aware of it, I I think is I just don't believe it. You know, I I, I think that they have to have some they had somebody in the government had to be witting that this was happening. I don't know that that necessarily means Netanyahu, but I I just find it very hard to believe that uh, you could have an operation that's of that sensitivity uh, against senior Americans without somebody either in the Mossad or either figuring it out or being being briefed, back briefed on it. Okay, some questions about where we are today. First one is, Ben, based on what you've said publicly and written, I think it's probably fair to say that you believe that President Trump's approach to the world is damaging our national security interests. That's fair to say. Um, and, and what's your yeah. logic? How do you get there? So the main, the real logic I have is it's actually not, I could go issue by issue and make an argument, obviously, about why we should be in the Paris Agreement, the Iran deal, and uh, what have you. I think there's a bigger issue, which is I think he is basically unraveling the U.S. position in the world that has been built up over 70 years before our eyes. And there's a collection of things. One, our credibility. By pulling out of all these agreements, TPP, Paris, uh, Iran, potentially NAFTA, he's undermining the credibility of the United States to enter into those types of agreements. And we generally are the country that are trying to organize other countries to pursue those types of agreements. Second, the antagonism to allies, you know, the fights at the, you know, the G7 was the summit that we would go to because we agreed with everybody there. You know, the, the, the fighting with Canada and Germany and the, the trade wars with Europe and Japan, you know, to me are deeply costly because those are the countries that we're going to have to count on in a crisis. And those are the countries we're going to have to count on to, to build collective action. And then lastly, just the kind of belligerence towards the world, the, the clear disdain for global opinion, the casualness with the truth. And frankly, the images that we're projecting on our southern border or the outreach to Putin, the kind of kind of almost nonsensical invitation for them to rejoin the G7. All these things are so out of step with how America has acted in the world under bipartisan administrations. And I think the costs and consequences of that, you know, they don't become apparent immediately. But over time, what I feel like is going to happen is. Other countries are going to go their own way. The Europeans are not going to look to us to call the play anymore. They're going to have more independent foreign policy. In Asia, countries that have been resisting Chinese dominance might succumb to it. And that you may have a reallocation of global influence in the next four years that sees a pretty significantly diminished role of the United States. Is that States. reversible, do you think, or is it long-term? I think it's, it's, um, it's long-term, but... You know, obviously make a political statement here. I, I think that other countries, yes, there's, the, again, the immediate cost of them feeling like the U.S. can't be trusted anymore. They're pulling out of Iran. They're pulling out of 
Paris. They're, they're pulling out of TPP. They're starting trade wars. They're praising dictators and, and fighting with allies. But to me, there's something more fundamental, which is that we were the safe bet. And it's not just that Trump is president. It's that, that we elected Trump. And and what does that mean about the United States? And, and a quick anecdote I'll give you, Mike, on this is I was in Japan kind of doing a you know, washed up former officials do uh, talking to a group of business people, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they're senior Japanese business people. And they were asking me, I went there at the height of the North Korea tensions. So I just assumed all the questions about North Korea, but they had far more questions about Charlottesville. And, you know, what I realized is the rest of the world is taking stock of this kind of reality show that's taking place here and thinking, can we count on this country? You know, like if you're Japan or Germany or You've counted on us for literally your kind of security, if not your survival, in the case of Japan and South Korea. And so I worry that if there's not a pretty substantial course correction, that other countries might feel less confident in saying, okay, we can trust the Americans to be not just the leader, but, you know, essentially uh, our most important relationship in the world. And they're going to look to diversify their own relationships I think the biggest beneficiary of that is going to be China. And and so I think it's it's salvageable, but it does matter what happens in the next couple of elections and 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 how we seek to, you know, course correct here because I think the world is is kind of re, rethinking what they think about America in a way that even under Bush, you know, people might not like the Iraq war, but we were still a recognizable, you know, democracy. Now they're seeing things that they never expected to see happen in America. And that's that's what concerns me. So you mentioned before, Ben, that President Trump is dismantling right aspects of President Obama's legacy. You mentioned Paris, um, Iran, throw Cuba in that yeah, you know, yeah. um, uh, basket, too. Is there a part of the Obama legacy that endures and will endure? How do yeah. you think about that? So, you know, I, I think about it in two ways. You know, one is <clears throat> there are... Even some of those things you mentioned, Trump shows us how fast a pendulum can swing, right? Well, it can swing back. And the next president could just come back into the Paris Agreement or move forward with Cuban, you know, uh, relations. And, and so, you know, there are even policies that look like they are being dismantled that could be, you know, picked up and carried forward again. There's also something more fundamental. I thought a lot in writing this book about, you know, what 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 is a legacy? And I thought about presidents who inspired me. You know, I was the kind of young Democrat who John F. Kennedy was my hero. And that's part of the reason why I went into politics. I couldn't name you like the five to 10 legislative accomplishments of John F. Kennedy. Even on foreign policy, I could Mm -hmm. name, you know, can you manage the Cuban Missile Crisis well and uh, the Peace Corps? But it was something more intangible. It was this, you know, he inspired people and he made people think differently about themselves. And, And his legacy... I'm part of his legacy. I kind of went into politics as a John F. Kennedy, you know, decades later. And and I, I, I think and hope that, you know, Barack Obama was the kind of president who actually had that impact on people in the United States and around the world. He kind of expanded their sense of what they could do. And so 10, 20, 30 years from now, there will still be positive change taking place, in part because of who Barack Obama was and what he did. And so maybe I'm reaching for something here, but I actually truly believe that at the end of the day, the kind of scorecard you have on the day you walk out of office is actually not your legacy. Yeah, it's yeah. where the country goes, yeah. not just now, but in the next 10 or 20 years. So so maybe this is a, a good place to ask what will be the last question, and I think it's related, although there may be a broader context to it as well. After the election, you say in the book that President Obama sent you a quotation. Yeah. Right, And that quotation is, 
there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth. Yeah. What do you think he meant by that? I, you know, um, he's somebody who always seeks perspective and kind of the long view. You've encountered that, I'm sure. And I think it was even getting more pronounced even before the election towards the end of the presidency. I think part of that was in the face of the shock of the election, because that was literally only a few hours after the election. I was walking home at like three in the morning, I think, when I got that. You know, I think he was reminding me and probably himself that you can't get too up or down, in this case down, over something that is happening right in front of you, you know, today, that that we live in a much broader sweep of history, <laughs> and, and <laughs> in that case, a much, you know, larger universe. It's very but Asian. It's, it's very, well, but I, I actually spend some time in the book spe- talking a lot about how important Asia was in his background. I quote him talking about when he grew up in Jakarta, in that kind of mass of humanity, you think about your role as an individual a little differently than right. here in the United States or in Hawaii, you know, there's a certain kind of peace and calm and, and it can sound kind of new age, but I, I think it's, it's true that he, you know, he's the kind of disciplined person, mentally disciplined to say, I can control what I do and I can try to make an influence on others. There are going to be things that I don't control. And when those things happen, I can't let that overwhelm me or knock me off course. And sometimes people ask me, why isn't he speaking out more? And I think if he was down in the mud with Trump, that would be so out of character for him. It's, you know, he, and so I think he was trying to, to, to get me to look beyond how bad I felt that day at the fact that we're, we're part of a broader story that is playing out over, you know, <laughs> over history here. And so just as we couldn't be too high after the 08 election, we shouldn't be too low after the 16 election. Ben, fascinating discussion. The book is The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. The author is Ben Rhodes. Ben, thanks for being with us. Thanks. It was great. That was Ben Rhodes. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.